Hi, thanks for joining us at Seen and Unseen Aloud. This is where you get to listen to a curated collection of the editor's top picks of our recent articles. For when you need to be eyes-free or hands-free, but still want to discover the seen and unseen. A Place of Cleansing by Natalie Garrett I recently moved house, a process which rates highly on the stressometer, not least because you see your life, as represented by the stuff of your life, packed up in boxes and taken away from your home to be reassembled somewhere else in a strange ghost version of your home. To be organised, before we moved, I arranged for a clearance company to come and do the unimaginable, clear the loft. We had lived in our home for 13 years. My children had been born and grown up there. We had grown up as parents and as a family. To see all the plastic trophies of our children's early lives being taken away to be rehoused was almost like seeing members of the family being taken away to be adopted into other families. But at the end of that process, I had thought that when we moved into the new house, we wouldn't have too much by way of clutter. I was wrong. And so my relationship with the nearby household recycling centre began. I have become almost obsessed with my weekly visit to the tip, which is located just outside town. The sense of catharsis and purging is verging on addictive. At the tip, there is a range of different waste bins, wood, metal, large appliances, etc. And a wonderfully ambiguous catch-all everything else that can't be recycled bin. There are places to leave what can be upcycled. There are places to leave dangerous chemicals. The tip is a welcoming place for those of us who recognise that we want to get rid of stuff that is taking up space in our life slash home that isn't helping us live well. It's a place where a person is encouraged to acknowledge that we don't need to hold on to what brought us joy in the past, but only gets in the way in the present. What is now harmful to us can be taken away and dealt with by professionals. Today we're often told, never apologise, have no regrets. But that's really hard, because most of us know in some place of our being that we've said or done or thought things that aren't good. And that knowledge elicits feelings of guilt and shame. So what do we do with that? Ignoring and suppressing those feelings doesn't mean they go away. Instead, they fester. Festering shame is one of the greatest poisons, one of the greatest risks to the flourishing of the human soul. It needs to be purged, not hidden. And so I return to the dump. At the dump, you aren't judged for what you bring. There is a shared respect amongst visitors to the dump, almost a greater respect for the person with the fullest car or the most fetid waste. Where can I go to leave my rotting conscience? There is a spiritual discipline akin to my weekly tip trip, the discipline of confession. Confession is a spiritual gift that helps us unload the sometimes debilitating cargo of our psychological burdens. In the Christian tradition, the practice of confession can be a shared experience as part of a congregational worship service. Or it can be a more private moment shared with a priest or trusted Christian friend. 
or confession can be done just me and God, just you and God. We can honestly bring our mistakes, past or present, and be set free by God's forgiveness. It doesn't have to be in posh language, it just needs to be honest. We can just say sorry. We can say we just really wish we hadn't done said thoughts and we want to repent. Repentance means turning around and going a different way. So we can ask God to help us leave something behind and learn how to go a different way. Jesus invites you and me to bring our rubbish to the greatest spiritual waste centre located just outside town, outside time, at the foot of a cross on Calvary. His physical death was terrible, but the spiritual death was far more painful. He acted like a magnet to all the darkness of humanity and drew it into himself. So out of love, he became the dumping ground for all that is worst about humanity. And it crushed him. But, Christians believe, he rose again three days later. He came out the other side and invites us to follow him there too, into the light of forgiveness and freedom. So, next time I'm loading my car up with more, more cardboard and a few bulky leftovers from yesteryear, I'll try to remember to do business with my burden of shame, which we can dump at the cross of Christ, knowing that it will be dealt with, that it has been dealt with. And we can leave with an empty car, lighter, hopeful, clear-headed, free. Who's by your side? By Lauren Wendell. I don't watch films about addiction. When I first got clean and sober almost nine years ago, I soaked in any piece of content I could find on drugs, drug use and recovery. At the time, it was just YouTube clips of Russell Brand and the occasional memoir of a starlet who turned to cocaine before discovering yoga. After going to a 10.30am showing of Amy Winehouse's documentary film, Amy, and bawling through the entire film, I decided to call it quits. I don't need to see horrific stories of desperation. I've lived one. I'm not a casual observer of addiction narratives. I've got skin in the game. In 2018, I went to see A Star is Born, thinking I was watching a rags-to-riches tale of an unlikely pop star. I quickly realised we weren't there to witness the female protagonist's ascent, so much as the male protagonist's descent. I got back in my car and had to wait a quarter of an hour for the fit of hysterical tears to pass before I could drive home. I had the same realisation watching A Good Person. Going in, I knew that I'd signed up to a film with Morgan Freeman and Florence Pugh. I knew that Pugh's character Alison had it all before a dramatic accident changed everything. The ground here sounded so well-trodden that I thought I may need my wellies to navigate it. I knew that there was some element of addiction, but I envisaged a reasonably light-touch depiction of a few too many nights out on the source. I knew I was wrong when, about half an hour in... Alison lay on the cold bathroom floor to soothe her withdrawal from prescription opioids. She was sweating, shaking and breathless, and from then on, 
it all felt distressingly familiar. The trajectory of her decline was too quick, too obvious, too accurate. As Alison bargained, manipulated and begged for drugs, I saw myself. As Alison looked directly in the mirror and said, I hate you, to her own glazed reflection, I saw myself. As Alison was dragged out of a stranger's house party, unable to stand upright, I saw myself. The hopelessness, the false starts, empty promises and rare moments of lucidity rang so true that I would find it hard to believe that writer Zach Braff hadn't experienced his own similar hardship. Either that, or the recovering addicts they hired to consult on the project deserve a bonus of investment banker proportions. When Alison eventually reached out for help and asked a woman to sponsor her, the loving directness that came back was reminiscent of those I was given by my first sponsor. It was virtually word for word what I remember being told when I, nine days sober, made the same terrifying request. The experienced mentor told her, some beat it, some die. And she's right. Any of my friends who went to an inpatient treatment centre were told to look around because in five years, a decent number of their cohort would be dead. And they were always right. Some people give up and let the tide of addiction pull them under. They feel exactly as Alison did when she told Daniel, played by Morgan Freeman, I'm not sure I have the will. And when she confessed in a Narcotics Anonymous meeting that Without the pills, I want to die. In the 2015 film Amy, the one that convinced me to stick to rom-coms, there's a scene that stuck with me. Amy had been invited to perform at the Grammys, but was denied a visa because of her well-documented drug use. It was arranged for her to live perform in London, and it would be broadcast on big screens at the event. When the date came around, she was in a stint of sobriety. She performed beautifully and won five Grammys. One of her friends burst into her dressing room to celebrate the momentous achievement. But all Amy said was that it wasn't as good without the drugs. Getting into addiction means silencing that feeling in your spirit that says something isn't right and you should go home. It's consistently pushing through when you get a pit of your stomach urge to cut and run. Because you want the drugs. So you know you'll have to take the chaos they're packaged in. At some point you stop remembering that you ever felt uncomfortable. And you start to think you enjoy where you are, what you're doing and the people you're doing it with. You get Stockholm Syndrome and life before your captor is in distant memory. You learn to love the cage you build around yourself and stop dreaming of more because you are blind to anything beyond the walls that you've created. You're not happy, but what other options do you have? You could trade the misery of addiction for the misery of abstinence, but either way you'd be miserable, so you might as well do it with the drugs. Except that's not true. When we're living our lives right... We're living them in complete freedom. Slaves to no substance or behaviour with the freedom to say yes to what we want and crucially the freedom to say no. It's the present Jesus gave us in the resurrection 
but so many of us, myself included, hand it back like it came with a gift receipt. What I wish I could have told Amy at the Grammys, Alison in that NA meeting, and myself when I first said the words, I think I'm addicted, is that there's so much more than what you can currently see. I wish I'd known the dreams that would be realised, the friendships forged and the profound moments I would experience on the other side of those first excruciating months of sobriety. I would have wanted to know that in time my grip would loosen, my knuckles would go from white back to their fleshy hue and I would be able to breathe again. It wouldn't feel like a compromise or a half a life as though something was missing but I would feel more fulfilled and alive than any drug would ever allow me. A good person demonstrates the chronic and repetitive condition of addiction with a laser-sharp accuracy that for someone with lived experience could burn. But it's also a tender reminder of the power of unlikely friendships forged from a mutual understanding of adversity. Made me think of the woman who scooped me up as I backed away from my first ever support group meeting and said, you can sit next to me. It made me grateful for the woman who mouthed, it's going to be okay, at me across the table as I sat there listening with tears rolling down my face. It reminded me of the awe I felt the first time I heard someone speak about the insomnia, shame and self-hatred of drug addiction. And I realised I wasn't the only one. The film showed the transformative effect of consistent community in a way that I hope encourages people to turn up to one of those meetings like Alison and I did. I pray that this is the turning point in many people's lives. Should you go and watch it? Absolutely. Just don't ask me to go with you. Surviving Post-Liberal Society by Graham Tomlin Much has been made in recent times of the alleged demise of liberalism. From the heady heights of 1989, when Francis Fukuyama's famous essay announced the end of history, and it seemed that liberal democracy was the only game in town. Things don't look so auspicious now. Back then, it seemed that of the three great 20th century political creeds, Fascism had met its ugly end in the Second World War. Communism had crumbled in the ruins of the Berlin Wall in 1989. And so Western free market secular liberalism was the last one standing. The only realistic political and philosophical option for the future of the world. Then a whole series of events challenged that narrative. The attack on the Twin Towers in 2001 announced that religion was not a spent force in the modern world, but a powerful motivator outside the Western, European and American bubble, for better or worse. Throughout the 20th century, Christianity had been quietly growing in Africa, from just 9% of the continent's population in 1900 to 48% a century later, and it continues to grow. The remarkable rise of Chinese Christianity after the devastation of the Cultural Revolution, the resurgence of Islam worldwide, 
and the prediction that in coming decades, atheists, agnostics and others who do not affiliate with any religion will make up a declining share of the world's total population, made the prediction of a secular future suddenly seem foolish. The financial crash of 2008 put paid to the hope of gradual economic growth in the trusted hands of the market, and then the rise of Trump, Bolsonaro, Erdogan, and of course the political and social earthquake of Brexit, placed a huge question mark over the assumption of a globalised liberal order gradually taking over the world. In the wake of these events, a growing number of voices started to call attention to the travails of liberalism. Patrick Deneen's 2018 book, Why Liberalism Failed, argued that liberalism had failed to achieve its lofty goals. A political philosophy that was launched to foster greater equality, defend a pluralist tapestry of different cultures and beliefs, protect human dignity and, of course, expand human liberty, in practice, generates titanic inequality enforces uniformity and homogeneity, fosters material and spiritual degradation, and undermines freedom. The crisis in liberalism is a theme that runs through the worried pages of many political broadsheets or cultural commentaries. Is liberalism dying, or is it just going through a period of sickness before recovering in new forms? Most people think it's not on its last legs yet. And yet the crisis in liberalism has led us into a number of crises in modern life, many of which can be traced to the flaws which lie alongside the strengths of the liberal project. First, we have a crisis of trust. Liberalism presents itself as a rejection of the tyrannical and stifling control of social, religious and political convention. The controlling eye of church, school, family and government was seen as oppressive, contravening the rights of the individual. Throwing off the yoke of such supposed authorities was essential to living an authentic life. John Stuart Mill, one of the great pioneers of liberalism, wrote of the depotism of custom. And while Mill's rejection of starched Victorian conformity may be understandable, the result of the revolt he helped to unleash was to undermine trust in authority and government. Examples abound. A recent one was Baroness Casey's recent report on the Metropolitan Police that accused it of being institutionally racist, misogynistic and homophobic. Before that, the abuse of expenses trashed the reputation of MPs. The financial crash taught us bankers couldn't be trusted and the phone-tapping scandal besmirched the reputation of journalists. In addition, a number of studies suggest that the length of tenure of CEOs has decreased in recent years as they struggle to maintain legitimacy, while here in the UK, we've gone through prime ministers as quickly as football managers. The church is no different. The many stories of child abuse, the betrayal of vulnerable adults, the prejudice against minorities have all eroded levels of trust in the clergy. Whether you look at business leaders, bishops, local politicians, estate agents, levels of trust in sectors of our society that are crucial for the good functioning of social life are at a very low ebb. It's hard to tell whether the crisis stems from our increasing scepticism that truth claims are only ever power plays, 
or because movements like Me Too or Black Lives Matter have led our leaders being held to a higher sense of accountability? Have standards in public life diminished? Have our leaders become less trustworthy? Are our institutions more systematically corrupted? Or is it that we now expect far more of our public figures than we used to, and therefore constantly find them wanting? Whatever the answer, the overall result is catastrophic. Trust is essential for the good functioning of any human community. A society full of mutual suspicion cannot function well and is not good for us. As Graham Greene once put it, it is impossible to go through life without trust. That is to be imprisoned in the worst cell of all, oneself. Liberalism's tendency to challenge past authorities may be justified. Taken to the extreme, however, it has bred a society in which it's hard to put your faith in anyone. As well as a crisis of trust, we have a crisis of anxiety. Economic liberalism valorised free markets, liberating individuals to benefit from the mutual exchange of goods and releasing human enterprise from the shackles of convention and control. Deregulation would liberate the human spirit of adventure to develop a future shaped by progress. Rather than accepting to live within the limits and rhythms of the natural world and the givenness of a broader cosmic order, the liberal instinct was to declare the freedom of the individual to self-create, to forge individual identities in the search of autonomy and self-realisation. Yet today, Generation Z perceive climate change as the number one threat to their future. Climate change anxiety is an increasingly recognised syndrome, leading people to forego out of despair, bringing children into such a damaging world and fueling high levels of mental health problems especially amongst young people. Add in a global pandemic spread rapidly around the world by our fondness for limitless travel that saw levels of anxiety rocket. We now have war within borders of Europe for the first time since 1945, with the added prospect of China being drawn into the war on the side of Russia. And as a result of this, and never quite learning the lessons of the 2008 financial crash, we have a cost-of-living crisis more severe than has been known for decades. The progress of the sophisticated algorithmic technology of social media fuel increases levels of anxiety and mental health problems for those addicted to clickbait or the desire for likes. And talk of an epidemic of mental health problems doesn't seem an exaggeration. Third, we have a crisis of relationship. At liberalism's core is the idea of the freedom of the individual from societal expectations and structures. Michael Frieden, professor of political theory of Nottingham University, summarised the heart of liberalism as a rallying cry for individuals desiring space to be free from unjustifiable limitations. Theorists such as Ronald Dworkin argued that the individual is best placed to choose their own vision of the good and therefore the state must remain neutral on such notion, leaving the playing field open to myriad definitions of what people ought to aspire to, almost as many as there are people. The liberal ideal of individual freedom, that each person should be free of interference from their neighbour in their choice of the good life, as long as they don't harm others, 
is superficially attractive. Attractive, that is, until we realise that it gives us no good reason to care for one another. And in fact, encourages us to think of our neighbours as potential infringements on our freedom to do as we choose. The result has been a slow erosion of the social bonds that tie us to each other. If that is our central moral ideal, that the individual should be free from obligation or restriction from anyone else, should we be surprised that we end up more distant from each other? Should we be surprised that we treat each other as enemies on social media, or that we refuse to have contact with those of another political tribe? Or that we abandon those older ties, those social institutions that bound us each to each other? Family, parish, church, local voluntary societies? Now, a crisis of trust, anxiety and relationships is, in fact, a crisis of faith, hope and love. This trio has a long history in Christian life and thinking, ever since St Paul coined it in a letter to the fledgling church in Corinth in the first century, in words that echo in many a wedding service today. Now these three remain, faith, hope and love. But the greatest of these is love. Christianity focuses attention on these three theological virtues, as they are known, and the church, with all its flaws and failures, has continued to be a school in which they can be learnt through a number of distinct practices. First, faith. The creeds begin with the simple word credo, I believe. It's the first thing you do as a Christian, to put your trust in something, or better, someone, who you cannot see, cannot prove, and yet you are invited to do exactly that. Take the risk of faith. Trust is built when people keep their promises. The God that the writers of the Bible speak of describe him with exactly that idea, that he is faithful to his promises, like a marriage partner who does not give up on the other, no matter how wayward they might be. Being a Christian starts to teach you to trust God in a way that might even lead to trusting other people again. That doesn't mean accepting deeply flawed and abusive institutions, but it does mean giving people the benefit of the doubt. The assumption of trust, rather than mistrust, that tends to bring the best out of most people. Second, hope. In politics, false dawns are as predictable as taxes. If our hope is in our political leaders to deliver radical solutions to combat mental well-being, it's unsurprising Generation Z despairs. Christian hope, on the other hand, rests not on any human promise or expertise, not, thank God, on the superior qualities of bishops or popes, but on something entirely outside human capacity. The story of the resurrection of Jesus, the conviction of a divine break-in to the order of the universe that has always had the capacity to bring a sense of hope in the darkest moments of an individual's or a community's life. Last, love. At the heart of the Christian faith is the conviction that each person, whatever his or her qualities, background or even character, is infinitely valuable because they are loved by the God who made them. The outworking of this idea in history is to make love, not suspicion or even tolerance, 
the ideal bedrock of social life. This is the tie that binds. When I look into the eyes of my enemy, I see my brother. When I look into the eyes of my neighbour, I see not a potential threat to my personal autonomy, but a person of infinite value whom I am bound to love as God does, however annoying, contrary or wrong their personality or political opinions. These three qualities, faith, hope and love, are like muscles. The more you exercise them, the more they grow stronger. A life or a society that chooses to root itself in Christian faith tends to grow in its capacity for faith, hope and love. Thank you for listening. Remember to subscribe to this podcast to get more curated articles from Seen and Unseen Aloud. We hope you discover a world that is greater, more full of meaning and sense than you ever imagined.